Hello, my name is Labib Mahfouz and welcome to Beyond Alpha. Today in episode 9 of Beyond Alpha, we will be talking about sustainable investing and ESG. We're really privileged to welcome Eric Boremans, head of ESG at Pictet Asset Management. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Labib. Eric, maybe we could begin with uh, some of your background. You have well over 20, 25 years of, uh, of industry experience in, uh, in ESG and sustainable investing. And maybe you could share uh, your background to the audience. I started my career in sustainability back in 1992. Uh, that was after shaping an MBA in environmental management at Columbia University back in 1990. I then joined an environmental consultancy for 10 years, working for industry across pretty much all industry sectors and, and across the globe to help companies enhance the way they manage environmental health and safety, and then came back to finance in 2000 uh, to join a boutique firm focusing on sustainability in Zurich and two years later joined BNP Paribas Asset Management, where I spearheaded ESG for 10 years and joined then Picte Asset Management in 2013, where I'm currently heading a team of seven people to support investment team in shaping their ESG lens to coordinate active ownership activities and to also foster the deployment of ESG metrics that help clients understand um, to what extent the portfolios that we manage on their behalf are geared towards ESG. So that's really interesting because when people think about ESG or sustainability, they think 2006, 2007, 2009. I mean, some people may even think just in the last year or two that ESG is in vogue, but, but apparently that's not true. Can you give us maybe some history background on where the, the need or for ESG or sustainability investing really came up? What produced the development of, of, of ESG investing overall? Well, let's start maybe with, with the basics. E stands for environment and encompasses a broad range of issues from climate change to water, freshwater resources, air, uh, waste, biodiversity, and, and more generally, natural resources. Mm -hmm. S covers also a, a fairly broad range of issues from employees, human capital to clients and product recalls relations with local communities or, or supply chains, while the, on the governance angle, it encompasses issues such as the composition of the board, shareholder rights, executive remuneration, or business ethics. So ESG covers a broad range of issues, and, and it, it basically brings another lens that goes above and beyond conventional financial analysis. A number of those issues are referred to, such as greenhouse gas emissions, pollution events, workplace accidents or product recalls, bribery, corruption can impact uh, assets, liabilities, revenues, expenditures, and basically uh, because they are material, they need to be priced in by investors, whether that's on the equity or on the fixed income side. But fundamentally, the idea behind ESG is that um, Plain and simple, the economy is a fully owned subsidiary of society and of our natural environment. Hence, 
one cannot look at companies' financials in isolation of the society or the communities in which it operates, and one cannot ignore the degree to which companies and the economy depends on natural resources, biodiversity, or likewise the extent to which uh, polluting the environment may become a cost for companies and for the economy in general. But back to your question, ESG is not new. Uh, it's been around for decades in various shapes or form. In the 70s and 80s, one was talking about ethical investment. In the 90s, it evolved into SRI or socially responsible investment, sustainable and responsible investment. But it's clear that in the last uh, three to four years, there has been a real acceleration due to not a single factor, but to an acceleration of factors, and these include the fact that climate change, extreme weather events have become an economic reality in many parts of the world, in Asia, in Europe, and in the US. Environmental degradation, whether it's uh, water pollution, plastics in oceans, have also accelerated. That has in turn impacted consumers' attitude, but increasingly investors' attitude towards sustainability. And all of this, again, the backdrop of new regulations in many parts of the world, in Europe, in Japan, in China, and in the US, for example, through the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. So to cut a long story short, uh, I think it's fair to say that today ESG is not an end in itself, but it's more a means to an end. I think about it as ingredients that can be used for preparing different recipes or different dishes. And I think it's fair to say that there are today out there broadly three outcomes or three options for deploying ESG in investment strategies. The first option is what one calls ESG integration. That's the basis. That's very much anchored into the realm of fiduciary duty and financial materiality. For example, objectively, whether rain or shine, whether like it or not, extreme weather events are impacting uh, some companies and regions more than others, and more generally um, will, uh, going forward, uh, impact the, the value of productive assets. Think of buildings in areas subject to flooding. So it's not about beliefs. It's about basic fiduciary duty. It's about risk management. And that is expected from every investor. This is the first option. And, and at peak day, this is something that is expected from all investment teams. For some investors who wish to go a step further, it's also about, and that's the second option, it's about fiduciary duty, but it also is about reducing or exposure or altogether avoiding exposure to economic activities that are profitable today, but because they are causing negative impacts on society on, or the environment, for example, tobacco or, or coal, though the profitability of those activities can be questioned, can be challenged, but it can also, I mean, investors' appetite for, for this second option can also be driven by moral consideration. So it can be a mix of moral consideration or a conviction that those negative externalities caused by such harmful activities uh, may crystallize into financial performance over the medium to long term. That's the second option. And, and the third option that usually comes on top of the first two is driven by a desire to increase 
investments exposure to economic activities that have a positive impact onto society or the environment, for example, healthcare or renewable energies. Um, again, this can be driven by moral considerations and or a belief that such activities are set to grow faster than the rest of the economy. In the case of the green economy, the figures out there usually estimate that the, the growth rate is around 6 to 8% versus 3 to 4% for global GDP growth over the medium term. So broadly speaking, um, three options out there, a long history behind us, and, and a number of reasons that um, for which investors are actively looking for one of those three options. Do you think investors are, are looking at ESG like they look at SIN stocks where I'm not going to invest in these types of industries or these stocks? So whether it's airlines for pollution, whether it's oil and gas, is it is it that clear cut? Or as we, we see a lot of these industries, a lot of these companies in these industries are doing are making leaps and bounds, really, in, in, in how they are affecting the, the environment. Is it avoiding stocks like that or pushing companies to do more for the environment through governance or through board directorship or through voting? Or Can you clarify some of um, that aspect of investing? Well, again, um, it's sometimes difficult to second-guess investors' motivations. <laughs> Well, um, I, I would say the their, their, their motivation, if you're an investor, is to produce positive P&L. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we definitely not in the realm of philanthropy. This is about investments, right? And generate attractive returns or, or risk-adjusted returns. Uh, that is the overriding objective. Now, this being said, different investors will have different motivations, as I was alluding to earlier. Some would do it because they think it's the right thing to do from a moral, from a value mm -hmm. point of view, uh, while others uh, may do it because they think that, well, the risk-adjusted returns are at least as attractive, if not more attractive than uh, conventional investment. Um, it's a little bit like buying an electric car. Some people would do it because they would like to do something positive for the environment. They will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, while other people will do that because they will save on their, on their gas bill. Uh, and, and some people will do it for both reasons. So I guess you know, what, what's important is, is that the, is the demand for electric vehicles or the demand for ESG uh, minded strategies that matter. Uh, investor motivations. Uh, can vary and sometimes are, are hard to decipher. That's a, that's actually a great example. When investors are looking at, you know, there's the E, there's the S, there's the G, are they looking at investments that satisfy all three or can an investor, you know, focus on environment or an investor focus on the social aspect or investor focus on governance? Can you shed some light on on your views on how one looks at because being great in E may not necessarily be a positive for S and G, or or being strong in G may not necessarily mean a, a strong E or S. Can can you clarify on some of the data that you see around that? Well, look, there is a lot of talk today about the environment and, mm. and climate change is, but increasingly biodiversity are high on the agenda, both of policymakers and of uh, companies and investors. Social issues are important too. 15 to 20% of the population today suffers from 
overweight or obesity and up to a third of the population suffers from some form of malnutrition. Uh, human rights violations are on the rise in many parts of the world. Supply chain issues in emerging markets remain an important issue too. But beyond that, I think it's important to realize that the divide between social and environment is not always easy to make and is sometimes a little bit artificial. For example, global warming, one would say, yes, it's an environmental issue. We're on track to two degrees global warming by 2100. At the same time, consequence of that uh, through extreme weather events, whether it's floods or wildfires in the US and other parts of the world are likely to destabilize the very fabric of society through migratory tensions within countries or between countries or regions. Take another example, water. Is it an environmental issue or a social issue? Well, it's both. A quarter of the world population lacks access to safe drinking water. Almost 46% lacks access to basic sanitation. So yes, water is an environmental issue, but it has also has big implications from a public health point of view. Now, so I think all this to say that the boundary between ENS is sometimes fuzzier than one thinks, and they are definitely closely interconnected. Mm -hmm. Now, taking a step back, our view is that at the end of the day, governance runs the show. That's where the buck stops. The buck stops at the board of directors and top management. Um, these are the brain of organizations and, and whatever decisions, uh, strategic, operational, uh, that are made at that level influences everything else, whether it's uh, through the company strategy and the extent to which the product mix is shifting from the brown to the green through the environmental and social impacts of manufacturing plants, supply chains, logistics, hiring and firing, relations with local communities. I mean, all of this stems from good or functional or dysfunctional uh, corporate governance at the top of the organization. So back to your question, it's definitely something that uh, in those, those issues are closely interconnected and it's, and it's really hard to disentangle them. No, that's, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. People do initially think that they're, they're very separate goals, but clearly, um, as you mentioned, they are interconnected. When we're looking at investing, you know, at least for me, when I'm thinking about ESG and, and investing, Equity strategies are the first thing that comes to mind. Specific companies, especially at large asset managers, could own um, significant percentage holdings to, to to really affect, let's say, a board of directors. But you know, obviously, in when we look at you know the clients at Infusion, you know, we have clients that are obviously you know equity managers, and but we also have global macro. We have credit managers, fixed income. How does ESG play into a fixed income strategy, for example? Well, um, in, in fixed income, well, let's take the case of corporate debt. I would say pretty much the same way as it could play out for shareholders. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if a company has deficient or uh, corporate governance, that would have an impact on all investors, uh, shareholders and bondholders alike. With Obviously, a key distinction between the two is that for bondholders, the upside is limited and the downside is unlimited. So uh, in the research that we conducted, 
what we found is that within ESG, uh, well, as I said earlier, corporate governance plays a key role. And our view is that bondholders should pay perhaps more attention to the extent to which corporate governance is weak or is deteriorating because that could be a precursor of credit downgrades or enlarging. Yeah, and cost of financing their debts in the future. Exactly, Understood. exactly. Understood. For sovereign debt, um, the, the, the jury is still out. If you compare ESG versus non-ESG indices on, on the sovereign front, they have been very closely aligned. They actually, there hasn't been much of a difference between ESG and conventional bond uh, indices um, in the last eight to 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, plus or minus 50 basis points and similar durations. So it's, we very, in a, we are in a very narrow band. Um, going forward, if you take, uh, I mean, all of you, would be that the difference between strong ESG and weak ESG countries is likely to crystallize more than it has in the past. One very simple example, back to climate change and extreme weather events, countries like Mexico, parts of the US, China, and Southeast Asia are much more likely to be impacted, both from a social point of view and from an economic point of view, as the crime climate crisis take its toll over the next five to 10 years. And extreme weather events are very likely to have an impact on population, productive assets, and, and that could in turn could impact um, GDP growth, budget deficits, or even inflation, because climate change also has an impact on, on crop yields. So uh, chances are that going forward, um, ESG at country level through levels such as climate change and extreme weather events is, is likely to become uh, a, dis, uh, a differentiating factor more than it has been today. Understood, understood. Investment management firms and asset management firms, investors are inundated with data. They There's a data source for just about everything they're looking for. There's alternative data sources that we've talked about on this show uh, a number of times. What data is available for investors and asset management firms to actually make uh, thoughtful ESG investments? There's, you know, there's ESG indices. There's all these, um, you know, metrics. What do you see as as valuable overall, or what what should be some of the the key factors that investors should look at when thinking about their portfolio? You're right. There is, um, there has been an explosion. Of, of ESG data and, and some are much more creative than others. Some relying on uh, company reported data. Some of it is based on AI, NPL. I mean, you name it. As far as we are concerned, we have decided five years ago to create our own ESG scorecard based on four pillars. But I'll come back to that in a second. First of all, let's talk about conventional ESG ratings. I mean, this is the bread and butter in the ESG data market. Now, they are a limited number or a small number of uh, major data providers, to name a few, MSCI, ISS, Sustainalytics, that have been producing ESG ratings for a number of years, and that would be the first point of, of entry for many investors. I, I think what um, investors need to realize is that contrary to credit ratings, uh, where one observes a very high correlation between those produced by the Fitch, Moody's, and S&P of, of this world, high correlation in the 
credit rating world, but that is absolutely not the case in for ESG ratings. Um, it could be disturbing at face value, but one has to understand that the very reason why the correlation is low is not so much the underlying data that ESG ratings are using, but the underlying methodologies for comparing companies against one another. There are basically two ways to evaluate companies uh, against one another. Either one evaluates companies relative to their sector, so oil and gas versus oil and gas, banks versus banks, and so on and so forth, or to evaluate companies on an absolute basis or on a universal basis. Now, obviously, whether one goes one direction, uh, relative or absolute, uh, one will end up with very different results. Right. Uh, in the first case, they will be well-rated companies in any sector, including in fossil fuels, whereas in the latter, if one takes a more absolute or, or universal view, the usual suspects, such as mining and oil and gas, will tend to have structurally lower ESG ratings. But, and this is an important point, the main issue that we see with ESG ratings, whether they take an absolute or relative view, is the fact that in, in most cases, because they attempt to reduce a complex evaluation across many different dimensions that have no common currency, mm -hmm. they implicitly assume that weaknesses in one area can be compensated by strength in a completely unrelated area. For example, a company that emits a lot of CO2, which would be seen as weakness can be compensated by the fact that the same company has a very diverse board. And we think that, uh, that that's a bit, that's a bit naive. Would that, best. would that affect an ESG score? So that if I'm low, let's say on an environment, but I have a diverse board, I, you know, there's a bunch of charitable organizations that the company, let's say, gives to, does that, does that affect the ESG scores? So that way I could kind of as a company, um, control my score in some ways or raise my score because of weaknesses that I have implicit in yes. my organization? Well, you, 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 could, you could technically compensate the fact that you emit, say, a thousand tons of CO2 additional by improving your metric or your score in a completely unrelated area. Yeah, technically you could. And, you know, it's as if you, but look, but the result will be average. Right. Um, and, and that's a little bit too simple that, you know, in, in financials, there is a common currency between accounts. Well, the, I mean, everything has a common currency by definition in accounting. And so it's easier to aggregate. But in ESG, you're talking about tons of CO2, cubic meters of water, percentage, diversity, and so on and so forth. And these cannot be aggregated. You know, to take an analogy, it's as if you went to the doctor for an annual check and, and after having undergone a thorough number of checks, you go back to the doctor and the doctor says, well, your health is average. Uh, okay. Well, you're, you're, you have a bit of a heart weakness, but it's okay because your lungs are in good shape. <laughs> well, would you like that? Probably not. So, um, basically, I think the, 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 the fundamental issue to understand is that organizations like the human body are complex systems and complex systems are as strong as their weakest link. And that's exactly the, the shortcoming that we tried to overcome at PICTE by developing a proprietary rating, um, five years ago that is based on a system of flags, red flags and green flags 
that do not compensate one another, but rather are additive, so that at the end of the day, one is in a position to evaluate or to identify what are the key strengths and the key weaknesses that a given company is faced with and evaluate them by themselves on their own, rather than having strength being compensated by weaknesses to say that, well, it's average. Understood. Would you say ESG metrics are art or science? Well, both, I would say. It's a bit of both. It's it's hard facts in the sense that tons and cubic meters or uh, fatality rates or board independence are objective metrics, but the way to aggregate it, the vain attempt to try and reduce it into a single dimension is, is naive at best and potentially dangerous for investors because it's, it's erring on the side of being simplistic. I think aggregation, aggregation is the key. Eric, um, I think we could talk about this, uh, on a number of different episodes. I think we could, we could really expand and, and, uh, if it works for you, I think I'd like to have you on again and talk more about the metrics the data what what you do what pigtay does and what you're seeing other investors looking at on really how to strengthen um, the data and i imagine over time that we could see um, sustainable investing in esg overall as more science and less art and if that works for you i'd, I'd love to have you again on our show sure more science less arts and and perhaps also more economics and and less politics very well said Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Beyond Alpha. Beyond Alpha.